bum bum bottom 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 bum
for them to make them sound like not terrible siblings, but I'm like bringing the realness. I'm like, yes, I am the best sibling. <laughs> um, I have all of the goods to make me mom's favorite. Yeah. But uh, <laughs> like we live close enough where we've, kind of created a pod with my parents. Yeah, yeah, they're just right down the street. Yeah, so so I will be the only sibling at Thanksgiving, but I can't remember the last Thanksgiving where our all four of us have been together. Yeah, because even last year it was just you, me, your mom and dad. Yeah, like Thanksgiving has changed a lot where when I was a kid, it was like a day that I really anticipated and I was excited about the food. And I actually had this tradition where I would write everybody in my family like a turkey note where I would write these like little poems. I wasn't going to bring up the turkey notes, Lisa, (laughs) because I know. Oh, boy. Yes, a lot of guilt associated with the lack of turkey notes every single year. Um, but, But now, like, for me, Thanksgiving is really about my mom and mm-hmm. being there for my mom because she really does feel the absence of us not all being together under the same It roof. hurts her. Yeah, yeah. So, like, for me, I feel like I have a lot of seats to fill every year at Thanksgiving. But I, I still love to do it, and I love my parents' company. And, and I know that when my siblings can make it again, they, they will. Uh, we've gathered some affirmations of late, Lisa. We could just take those affirmations that we have created for this podcast and transform them into turkey notes for your mom and dad tomorrow. Oh, I mean, I I might try to throw a poem together. Uh-huh. Generally, like, like uh, it would be like short little two-line couplets for all of my siblings. And then I would write this like long, elaborate poem for my mom's turkey note. And every year she would read my poem and cry. Um, so I might do one of those poems, but I don't want to commit to anything because I also still have to make that sweet potato casserole. And so we'll see what happens. <laughs> well, I am looking forward to either the turkey notes or that sweet potato casserole because, you know, I mean, let's be real. I'm looking forward to that sweet potato casserole. It's got so many marshmallows on top. It does. It does. And I re- and I even um, bent some of my principles. Oh. And bought non-vegan marshmallows. It might be the last year non-vegan marshmallows, so you better enjoy those. I'm going to really enjoy it, Lisa. (laughs) I promise, I promise. For me, like, my favorite part of Thanksgiving is waking up to no work and diving immediately into some breakfast and comics. Oh, yeah. Then how is that different than any other? Uh, I mean... I mean, like any other Saturday? Yeah. Any, well, I can read Breakfast and Comics all the way up to the point where we depart for your parents' house. And there's something about Thanksgiving, and Christmas has this too, where the whole day has this like comforting aura, this like warm blanket of yeah. relaxation. And people usually like wrap it around themselves and watch football games all day. Weird. Well, yeah, no, thank you. They watch the Macy Day Parade. Not happening Not this happening. year. But like for me, like the, the that blanket, I wrap that holiday blanket around myself and I just absorb as many comics as humanly possible. And I have like a stack of comics set aside ready to go in the AM. That's so extraordinary. And we'll be looking at those comics through the beautiful auburn-colored lens of gratitude. Yeah, w- yes, absolutely, absolutely. 
because that's what it's really supposed to be about, right? Reflection, looking inward, asking yourself, what are you really thankful for this year? I'm going to toss it to you first, Lisa. Like, what are you thankful for in 2020, this very, very, very weirdo year? Well, I I think at the top of the list is my health and the health of my loved ones. You stole it. I was going to say that too. (laughs) Well, I mean, I'm glad that it is obvious to us. I think it's obvious to a lot of people that um, a lot of Americans uh, don't have that that gift this year. Not just Americans. A lot of people of this earth don't have that gift this year. Yeah. And a lot of people are uh, hurting, suffering, dying, and we should be very thankful for the health that we do have, and we should not take it for granted. We should be making sure that we're using our health to the best of our abilities. I'm also grateful for... My relationships, my relationship to you, my relationship to my parents, to my siblings, to my close friends, to kind acquaintances and friendly strangers and neighbors' dogs that I get to see walking around. I mean, we're about to hit our second anniversary of Comic Book Couples Counseling. December 1st marks year number two. That's unbelievable It's impossible to not talk about what we're thankful for without saying how thankful we are to this podcast and the community that has come up around it, uh, to all of you that I interact with on social media, to our patrons. I mean, you bring me so much joy to my life every day, and I can't imagine what uh, existence would be without you or this show. I think we would still do this show, but then in between shows, our self-esteem would be very low because well, we run on words of affirmation. But, like, but I mean, I agree with you because we were doing this show before we ever recorded it, right? We yeah. talked about comic book couples counseling for over a year before we actually turned it into a thing. Yeah, there was a long gestation period. And when we're not recording, we're having conversations very much like the one we're having right now, centered around comic books and movies and characters and all kinds of stories. And what this show is, is a gift to narrow that thought process, Mm. to help us fine tune our ideas and to really dig into why we love this medium as much as we do and pull out from that medium real world applications for our romantic relationship, Brad and Lisa. Like this podcast is such a tremendous part of our lives right now. And a defining part of this year in particular. Absolutely, absolutely. I would be utterly mad without it. (laughs) Thank you to you, each of you in particular. And here's a recommendation from me to you. I'm definitely going to do this tomorrow. Take a little time in front of the mirror and think about how you are thankful to yourself. What you've learned in the past year, how you've grown, how you've found ways to love yourself and entertain yourself, and think about ways to show yourself a little gratitude because you're extraordinary and you're special and hopefully you're your best company.
I can tell you what I'll be saying in the mirror tomorrow. I'll be thanking Brad for discovering Usagi Yojimbo. <laughs> it only took 40 years for me to finally dig into this series. And in a lot of ways, 2020 has been all about Usagi Yojimbo. I've now read every single issue in the series. Brad's heart has been totally full with gratitude for Stan Sakai. I mean, he is now one of my like heart creators. Like mm. I truly cherish what this man has given to me, uh, let alone the millions of other people who read this comic book. And it, it's so funny, like preparing for this episode, you will not believe the discovery I made this week, Lisa, Ooh. regarding the character of Tomoe Ame. Are you ready to hear this? Oh, I'm in so intrigued. So I was scrolling through the internet, doing my research, and I discovered something. Like, Lisa, did you realize that Tomoe Ame is not just a badass female samurai from Stan Sakai's Usagi Ojimbo, but it's also the name of a Japanese candy? No, no, I did not know that. It's a brand of sweets in the Botan Ame uh, or Blossom Candy family. Uh, they're soft, mochi-like, sort of chewy treats that feature a lemon-orange-citrus flavor, and they're wrapped in rice paper. Uh, the candy, or ame, is made from the botan fruit, which is similar to a grapefruit, but much larger. Some grow as large as a volleyball. They are cultivated on the southernmost island of Kyushu, and that's where the botan ame factory cooks them up. Uh, they've been doing this in Kyushu since 1926, and the candy is said to have inspired caramel. Uh, I think what intrigues me the most about these candies, Lisa, is that they're meant to be eaten with the wrapper still around them, the rice paper. So this is kind of stupid. Uh, but as you know, Lisa, I love me a Jolly Rancher. You do. Uh, I freaking hate, I hate the sticky little wrappings they come in. Brad does not like sticky things. I do not. Um, and like once you consume the Jolly Rancher, what the hell are you supposed to do with the trash wrapping paper? Uh, if you're near a trash can, duh, you toss them in there. But I like to eat my Jolly Ranchers on the road. The trash always ends up in my pocket. And then it's like this horrible little sticky surprise for <laughs> later. If... The wrapping was made from edible rice paper like these Tomoe Ame sweets. My problem would be solved. It sounds super unsanitary to me. <laughs> it comes in a little box. Okay, so, but then you still have to throw the box away. You, well, yeah, you throw the box away, but the box isn't sticky with the candy. I think that I've had Japanese candies wrapped in rice paper. I don't know if I've had this specific one. Well, guess but it's what? Always I've ordered an entire box of what? them. Oh, I'm excited. <laughs> of course I did. Of course I did. I want this candy. Yeah, me too. Well, they're going to be here in about a week. Uh, and, and, you know, what's interesting, though, is if you go back and listen to our first episode on Miyamoto Usagi and Tomoe Ame, uh, we said that Stan Sakai took inspiration from the real-life female samurai Tomoe Gozen, who kicked ass during the Genpai War era of 1180 to 1185. And that's true. But it also is true that Sakai did, in fact, name the character after the Tomoe Ame Sweets, which he adored as oh, a child. That's cute. This is not BS. This is how I stumbled across this info. So, you know, folks refer to Miyamoto Asagi as Usagi-san, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and not Miyamoto-san. 
right? Yeah. It's because Usagi is his family name. Uh, given that, shouldn't Tomoe Ame be referred to as Ame-san and not Tomoe-san, as she's often credited? Uh, I discovered this question on the Usagi Yojimbo Dojo Board, which is the website's message forum that Sakai puts together. And Sakai jumped in with an answer a few years ago confirming the candy origins. This is what he wrote. Ame is her family name, so she should be referred to as Ame-san. But just as Usagi is referred to as Usagi-san, I've chosen to make her Tomoe-san. The word Ame can take on different meanings depending on the kanji used to write it. In the case of Tomoe Ame, the candy, it is written with the kanji, which means sweet. In Usagi's Tomoe Ame, it is written with the kanji, which means rain, her sword style, which her father taught as part of the fighting rain style of swordsmanship. So what's a kanji? It's the adopted logographic Chinese characters that are used in the Japanese writing system. They're used alongside the Japanese syllabic scripts, Hiranga and uh, Katakana. If my understanding is correct, depending on the combination, meanings can be altered. In Let the Samurai Be Your Guide, Lori Sugawa Whaley actually gives the kanji for each of her principles. Oh, cool. And so, um, and it's interesting how they combine syllables to create different words because um, the syllable is like a picture of the meaning of the word. Mm. So for the word benevolence, it's the word for, it's the kanji for human mm -hmm. followed by the kanji for Two. So benevolence is generosity between two people. Oh, cool. I love that. And I love Stan Sakai. He, you know, he has this passion for Japanese history and mythology, but he's also this incredibly whimsical dude. The more I learn about him, the more interviews I read with him, the more I fall in love with this man. Ah, oh, I'm going to get jealous. Yeah, yeah, you should be. You should be. <laughs> uh, with that little bit of cuteness out of the way, we need to dig into our love guru, Lisa. How is our relationship expert, Lori Sugawa Whaley, going to help us this week? So we're two episodes in. This is our third episode with Lori Sugawa Whaley. There are seven Bushido pathways. How many Bushido pathways have we already covered? Hmm. Let's see. Uh, seven pathways divided by four episodes. Other math doing sounds. One. I've covered a total of one of the seven pathways. And uh, yeah, uh, we're going to have to skip. We're going to skip some of the pathways. I'm okay with skipping. We're, we're skipping benevolence. We're skipping respect. Skip to the end. Uh, not the end. I'm skipping to the second Bushido pathway. So I'm not really skipping, but I'm telling you already, uh, we're not going to do three and four, which are benevolence and respect. Uh, with respect to respect. Sorry, respect. <laughs> uh, you guys are just going to have to figure out benevolence and respect on the mean streets. Our love guru is Lori Sugawa Whaley and her book, Let the Samurai Be Your Guide, The Seven Bushido Pathways to Personal Success. She is a third-generation Japanese-American and a descendant of the samurai warriors on her paternal side. She is now a life coach and a keynote speaker who teaches the principles of her interpretation of the Bushido Code to help people tap into what she refers to as their soul purpose, S-O-U-L purpose to find their true leadership potential and live powerful lives. The reason I say her interpretation of the Bushido Code is because, as we learned last week with the help of our listener and history enthusiast, 
Andy W. was that there was never an overarching idea of the Bushido code that all samurai swore by and observed, though there were a few samurai who did writings on their personal philosophies. Miyamoto Musashi, the Book of the Five Rings, Lisa! <gasps> One day, he will be our love guru. I have regrets. Stop trolling me. Hey, you know, we can actually use Miyamoto Musashi for another Miyamoto Usagi episode down the line, because guess what? Usagi has other ladies in his life. What? Yeah, Lisa, we meet one of them at the end of Tomoe's story. We're going to talk about it here on this episode. Yeah, but uh, Tomoe and Usagi, that's OTP. I mean, they're they're my OTP, and I think they're now your OTP, and uh, we won't hear otherwise. But again, we can cover, we can, Miyamoto Musashi, he can be our guru someday, I promise. Be very careful with your commitments, Brad, because today we're going to explore the second pathway Integrity. I promise what I want to promise. Sugawa Weili equates the English word integrity to the Japanese word gi, which she more precisely translates to justice and moral righteousness. For her, gi means consistently choosing to do the right thing so you can remain on the straight and narrow path. But how do you know you are choosing the right thing? For Sugawa Whaley, maintaining your integrity means sticking to your principles, your commitments, and the truth. Sticking to your principles. For me, the idea relates back to a concept she introduced in the front matter of this book, that each decision in life should be treated as a test of character. Brad has caught me <laughs> testing out this approach. He knows we're in trouble when I start a decision off with, would you like to be the kind of person who... An easy example would be when you're in a store and you've picked up an item and you've decided, I don't actually need or want this. Just drop it right there. Do you want to be the kind of person who leaves it on the wrong shelf, like Brad, apparently? No. Of course not. So we either have to walk it back to the shelf it came from, or we have to do the thing I do all of the time, which is to give it to the cashier and then apologizing. Definitely don't dump it. Yeah, don't dump don't it. Don't dump it. Don't be a Brad. When you ask yourself that question, you trip over one of your principles. One of my principles personally is it's wrong to create extra work for someone else, particularly an hourly employee. Yeah, as two folks who spent many a year in the trenches of retail, uh, we, we, don't, we don't need to hurt other retailers. Absolutely not. So after defining that principle to myself and to Brad, I have to follow that principle every single time or my integrity is damaged. An important part of integrity is that you maintain your principles regardless of being observed or not. So to stick with a shopping example, I'm not a person of integrity if I leave the unwanted item on the wrong shelf if I'm not by myself or I think I won't get caught. The example Sugawa Whaley uses is the child who has not learned yet that it is wrong to steal doesn't sneak cookies out of the cookie jar because they're afraid they will get caught and punished. That child doesn't have integrity. I think that fear of getting caught feeling can be another principal finder though. Like let's say the child is less concerned with the actual punishment, but more concerned with disappointing their guardian. Then their principal may not be don't steal cookies, but it may be don't disappoint your parents. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense to me. Sticking to your commitments. 
this is a toughie for me because I am an introvert and I love canceling plans. I love, love, But you're love punctual it. as hell. I am. I am. That is one of my principles. Once committed, you're way committed. <laughs> I'm also a procrastinating perfectionist. So I love to kick a deadline down the road, <laughs> much to the frustration of my podcasting partner slash lover, Brad Gullickson. <laughs> Honestly, if you want me to not do something, please put it on my schedule. <laughs> but if I'm going to be like a samurai, my integrity depends on me doing what I say I'm going to do. According to Sugawa Whaley, samurai never renege on their commitment to their lord, even if it meant death. She uses as her example the revenge of the 47 ronin from yeah. the 18th century. Also adapted by Stan Sakai for Dark Horse Books. Ooh, I did not know that. Yes. They became ronin when their lord was forced to perform seppuku by a duplicitous court official. They honored their commitment to their wrong lord by murdering that court official. They then honored their commitment to shogunate law by performing their own seppuku. Seppukus? Seppukus. Seppukus um, for their crime. Fun fact, because of shogunate censorship laws, it was illegal to make plays of the story of the 47 Ronin because it was illegal to reenact current events. So playwrights created fictionalized versions of the 47 Ronin story for Bunraku, which is puppet theater, and Kabuki, which is opera, called Shushingura. And the story of the 47 Ronin has been a blend of history and legend ever since. But yeah. what account of history actually is it? That's true. I mean, but like 47 Ronin, like that story, you can encounter... I don't know, like hundreds, hundreds of that in cinema. America has added to the legacy of Shushingura uh, with yeah. the 2013 oh. film, 47 Ronin, starring Keanu Reeves. Did we, though? Uh, it has a 16% approval rating. <laughs> Have you not on, seen it? On Rotten Tomatoes. No, I hear it's dull. Oh, it's garbage. <laughs> but the Stan Sakai uh, version, which... Uh, he illustrated, and it was uh, partially adapted by Mike Richardson, the publisher of Dark Horse Comics, is fascinating. And I've been trying to get a hardcover edition for a long time. And if you've been following our socials, you know that I finally did get a hardcover version of it, and it was in oh, Italian. Yes. Remember, Lisa? I do remember. Italian, but the art's great. And because I know that story so well, thanks to the a myriad of films, including the uh, uh, Keanu Reeves movie. Uh, I, I can just follow along without the words. Yeah, it's a pandemic. You have time to learn Italian. Oh, no, I don't. Lazy. The 47 Ronin teaches that the path of integrity is one of high stakes. A samurai would never make a commitment lightly, like the commitment to uh, learn Italian, to read a book. Think if you took your New Year's resolutions as seriously as a samurai. Oh. You'd only have to make them once, instead of making the same ones every single year, like I do. One day I will get organized. I think the idea of following through on every little thing you say can be a double-edged sword. Perhaps you'll be like Tomoe and be willing to die for your commitment and lose out on a ton of other options. Or maybe you'll be like Usagi the Ronin, who wanders through life never making a commitment and losing out on a lot of relationships. Mm. He has a lot of relationships also though. But, but not, you know, not with Tomoy. You yeah, know yeah. what I'm saying. I know what you're saying. You're I just being you're contrary because you're on a microphone. That's correct. I'm always right. <laughs> oh, talking about me saying I'm always right. The last one is sticking to the truth. Okay, good. <laughs> 
One more Eastern element of integrity that is a challenge to my Western brain is that integrity has both a private and public face Hmm. and that your integrity can be damaged independently of your own actions. Someone else can wrongfully damage the public face of your integrity and that will cause you shame that can only be rectified with proof and apology. You can also wrongfully damage the public face of someone else's integrity and it bears the same guilt as causing them physical harm. So you don't question someone else's integrity unless you have solid proof and it's reckless and immoral to publicly speculate about anyone else's integrity. Sure. I understand not calling out someone else's integrity wrongfully. I have a personal mantra I actually got from a stand-up comedian, Jackie Cation, mm-hmm. who often says, I'd rather die of trusting too much than to live a life not trusting at all. I always try to take someone at their word, regardless of my suspicions, but it's the reverse that gets me. Let's say I got a flat tire going into work and it made me two hours late. If someone goes to my boss and says, I really doubt she got a flat tire. I bet she just slept in and is making excuses and taints my boss's opinion of me. My American sensibility is like, F that person, F my boss, I know who I am and I'm not ashamed and my integrity is intact. But from Sugawa Whaley's description of integrity, my integrity is damaged and I am shamed until I go to my boss and show them my receipt for my new tire or until I've proven myself enough that my boss's faith in me is restored. As her example of integrity, Lori Sugawa Whaley includes a short biography of the life of Michi Nishura Weglin, a Japanese-American who, in the 1960s, derailed her successful career as a costume designer and fashion designer to restore the integrity of Japanese-Americans who were wrongfully interned during World War II. Leading up to World War II, the American government was already brewing suspicions about Japanese Americans living and working on the West Coast. State Department investigator Curtis B. Munson was commissioned to report on Japanese loyalty. The Munson report, which included over a decade's worth of FBI and Navy intelligence, found that there was no evidence of disloyalty. But FDR signed Executive Order 1066 for Japanese internment anyway, and the Munson report was covered up. Not only did the conditions of these camps cause physical, emotional, and economical damage to the Japanese-American population of the United States, it brought to each of them personal shame. In 1968, Michi Nishiura Weglin discovered the book While Six Million Died by Arthur D. Morris. During World War II, Nishiura Weglin's family was captive at the Gila River War Relocation Center in Arizona with 13,000 other detainees, and she wondered if the fact that Americans were keeping an entire race of people in camps inured them to the Nazi atrocities, and that thought sent her on a seven-year research binge to restore the integrity of Japanese Americans. Michi Nishiura Weglin's book, Years of Infamy, The Untold Story of America's Concentration Camps, was published in 1977. It included copies of primary documents, including the Munson Report, as well as photographic evidence of the inhumane conditions of these internment camps. Her book spurred the redress movement that led to the passage of the Civil Liberties Act of 1988, which gave the 8,000 living ex-internees $20,000 in reparations, along with a formal apology from President Reagan on behalf of the American people. 
Doesn't feel like enough for me. No, and how could it be? But it does show that reparations do matter. Like, we need to acknowledge the horrible things we've done to prop up the institutions of this country. There is a great quote where Mishi Nishira Wagling calls out the United States integrity, which I find pertinent even today. Yeah. May I read it? Will Please. you indulge me? It is my sincere hope that this story of what happened only a generation ago may serve as a sobering reminder to us all that even constitutions are not worth the parchment they are printed on unless vitalized by a sound and uncorrupted public opinion mm. and a leadership of integrity mm. and compassion. Mm. Yes. Happy Thanksgiving, y'all. Sugawa Whaley does talk about the perks of having integrity because not only do you live in harmony with those around you and those around you trust you more, but you also live in harmony with yourself mm. because mm -hmm, you don't mm -hmm, have to worry mm -hmm. about being this chameleon all of the time. Yeah, it could be totally freeing. But I think you have to be... You have to have clarity with yourself of exactly what your principles sure. are. Yeah. And I think that That's an ongoing process. Exactly. We're we're coming up with our principles on the fly and we're growing and changing. So Nirvana's not there for us yet. So I feel like you can only be accountable for your integrity in the moment and you can't carry the burden of changing your principles from the past. Does that make sense? Well, and how you feel about previous decisions might change, right? You could feel like your integrity was in question uh, 10 years ago, but in retrospect, maybe you don't feel that way or vice versa. Yeah. I feel like the idea of integrity is a great way to go into Tomoy's story, especially in regards to commitments. Because I feel like Tomoy's commitment to the Gaishu clan has given a lot of meaning to her life, but has also come at a great personal cost. I think there are also lots of little examples where Usagi and Tomoy are playing a balancing act to stay on the straight and narrow path of integrity, which I am excited to point out. I, yeah, and what I love about this collection in particular is it's the first one that we've read where it is an anthology. It's, you know, one story here, one story here, uh, two chapters here, two chapters there. It's not the mother of mountains or grass cutter, this massive epic storyline. It's a series of vignettes. I found it a little off-putting at first. Yeah, I can see that. And yep. hard to get into because I missed having like that overarching. Sure. But then um, I did find these stories really charming. It and like every... Every little thing is like more insightful in the overarching story of their lives. When you continue to read Usagi Yojimbo comics, you're going to discover that more often than not, this is the format that Stan Sakai chooses to tell his stories. And these little vignettes do build up into larger narratives, uh, but rarely do you get a grass cutter, a mother of mountains, or even next week's episode of Senso. It's like a, an event. It's like a Marvel event, but it's just in this like one tiny bunny. Yeah, it becomes uh, all the more special when you hit a grass cutter because it's your end game. But the event that we've hit right now, Lisa, is our words of affirmation. Affirmation. It's time to give some affirmations to our new patrons. We got two this week, and these affirmations are adapted from the article 35 Affirmations That Will Change Your Life by Dr. Carmen Hara. Ariel Basca. You are the architect of your life. 
You build its foundation and fill its contents. Amanda Van Paris. Today, you are brimming with energy and overflowing with joy. I think because it is Thanksgiving, we really should put forth a little bit of extra effort, a little extra gratitude for our patrons, because they are not only supporting us financially by purchasing these extra bonus episodes every week, uh, but in doing so, they are offering their own words of affirmation uh, to us. Which energizes us and inspires us. Now, if you're not a Patreon subscriber, you can still take these affirmations. I curate them for myself and then pass them on to you guys. I actually have started taking a dry erase marker and writing them on my mirror in the morning. Like I have one up currently from our last episode that says, there is more than one path to the top of the mountain. Which was taken from Musashi, Lisa. Yes. And I was a little like skeptical of you writing these on our bathroom mirror, but I get that collateral affirmation <laughs> when I walk in there every day and I read what you've written up there and I go, okay, like think about it, live it, like let that soak in. And it does make me feel good. It kick starts my morning in a really like passionate way. And I love that. That heartens me. Thank you. Thank you for telling me that. You're welcome. Like, I do think it's something that you have to be proactive about. You have to consciously consider it. Uh, like we do our conversations as we now transition into the main discussion of the show. That was so smooth, my love. What a good segue. So on this week's episode, we're discussing Usagi Yojimbo book 22, Tomoe's story, which picks up immediately following following the events of the last storyline we covered, The Mother of Mountains. Tomoe's story reprints issues 90 through 93 of the third volume of Usagi Yojimbo, aka the Dark Horse Comics years, and these were published between January and April of 2006. Also included in this collection are a few tales from the earlier Fantagraphics titles, the Usagi Yojimbo color specials 1 through 3, although they are not in color here, and they were published in 
Uh, Tomoe, Ame, and Miyamoto Usagi have long been companions of the sword, two samurai fighting side by side through many harrowing encounters. A collection of tales ranging from exciting to exquisite, Tomoe's story chronicles the key moments in this important friendship. Friendship, interesting. Learn why Tomoe is the most valuable retainer of Lord Noriyuki of the Gaishu province. Then plunge into a terrifying ghost story where the prime suspect in a string of mysterious murders is a woman dead for 10 years. Finally, experience the mesmerizing beauty of a formal tea ceremony as Usagi and Tomoe share this spiritual event and learn even deeper truths about the nature of their relationship. Yay! I think that they have a friendship. Yeah, but is there more to that friendship, Lisa? Of course, there's always more. Does that mean that you don't think a man and a woman can be just friends? Of course. That's that that wasn't what I was saying. <laughs> I'm just saying whenever I read a story, I'll, I I want to see what else is there. I guess we could go, well, they also have a deep mutual respect. Mhm. Yeah, that's, sure. That's more. Sure, sure. But clearly there is something unsaid between these two that goes deeper than a friendship. And yes, I do think men and women can be just friends. I've seen the Ryan Reynolds film. Even <laughs> though that turns into a romantic adventure, I scoff at that notion. Since when has Ryan Reynolds been the beacon of what is true and right? Uh, since never. So digging into the first chapter of this book, which is the Tomoy story, her flashback story. The titular issue. Yes. Uh, we see Usagi and Tomoy on a grassy hill. They're squaring off. They're dueling. And as we've been told before this, they always end in a tie. And this first round of battle does so. Like, Tomoy thinks she gets the upper hand on Usagi, but he's got a lower blade at her belly. Like, both of them would have died in this maneuver, supposedly. What I find interesting in this moment is how Tomoy compliments Usagi on his very unorthodox style. His sensei taught him something that not many other samurai are aware of. There's only a handful of people trained under this style. And Tomoe, she was raised by her father and the falling rain style. And Usagi compliments her. But the impression I get from Sakai is that he respects the more unorthodox approach. And that sort of gives Usagi a leg up on most of his combatants. And in that way, Sakai is kind of in the school of Bruce Lee's Jeet Kune Do, which is a different martial art from a different country, but it's all about adapting for your opponent. Uh, you know, there's no way that your opposition can prepare for what you're going to dish out because that Op that, that opposition has never experienced this style before. I actually disagree that Stan Sakai holds the unorthodox melding of styles above Tomoe's styles because of the fact of they are perfectly equally matched. So to me... And we've never seen Tomoe killed in battle and Usagi's never been killed in battle. So I guess you're right. To me, it represents their two different lifestyles. Mm. Tomoe is committed to one lord, and she's also committed to the falling rain style. And because she spent literally her whole life working on this style, she reaches a level of mastery that surpasses anyone who has spread out their interests. So her mastery is something that's deep, but not very broad, where Usagi is a ronin. So he's not committed to one lord, 
he's not committed to one style. So his mastery is very broad, but not very deep. He's able to adjust to the situation, surprise his opponent, change things up, and that has its own advantages. So with their different advantages, they are still equally matched. Each lifestyle, each approach to uh, building your skills is equal. Do you think then that I'm just transferring this belief that Sakai prefers the uh, unorthodox approach because Miyamoto Usagi is the hero of the story and therefore uh, controls the entire narrative and the audience's point of view? To me, I think it is even more specific to Brad than that. <laughs> I think that you're projecting. Uh, be the, because, because of the Bruce Lee thing? Because you love Bruce Lee 100%. <laughs> and so you you think that that is superior to having a mastery of one Because he is the ultimate male. And he, and he is. I can't disagree with that. And I also think that you're a bit of a ronin. Uh, I'm a ronin? Yeah, you do things your own way. Uh, I mean, okay. Uh, I mean, we've talked about that on the past that you consider me a rebel. I don't know if, I mean, I, I sure, I'd love to be a ronin, sure. But I don't have it in me to be a ronin. Yeah, you do. You do not like to be confined. You're a freelance writer. Uh-huh. I don't think you get any more ronin than that. <laughs> but there's just such a, you know, uh, a, a masculine bit of badassery associated with Ronins that I don't associate with myself. Now, being poor and a bit of a bum like uh, <laughs> Toshiro Mifune is in Yojimbo does feel like a, there's a connection there with freelance writing. You wear the same pair of jeans oh, for no. days. Lisa, how dare you? How dare you bring up my jeans? These are new jeans. I'm wearing new jeans. This is only day two of these jeans. That's because it's Thanksgiving Day. <laughs> That's right. That's and right. And you're going to my parents' house. Uh-huh. 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 Not like a rodent. Uh, but moving on to the other part of this story, the main section of this story is the flashback that Tomoe tells Usagi while they have their lunch on the hill. And we go back in time and we see uh, Tomoe as a young girl practicing in her father's school with her brother. And she is destroying her brother. She is far superior to him. And uh, he does not take that well. But it does bring a lot of pride to Tomoe's father, although... Even though she is clearly the best uh, student he has, she can never take over as the sensei of the school because she is a woman. She is heartbroken and her father feels this tremendous guilt because he was the one who put the sword in her hand. Encouraged her. And she found this passion that she can only perform in secret. When she comes of age, her father takes her to the castle of the feudal lord, who is actually Lord Noriyuki's father. And he puts, places her there to be accepted as a lady in waiting with hopes that she'll be able to spy on Lord Odo, because rumor has it he is in cahoots with Lord Hijiki, who apparently lives forever. What's the background on Lord Hijiki? Well, I mean, he's the big bad of the story. He's 
responsible for the death of Lord Mifune, who is Usagi's uh, master. And when Mifune died, that's when Usagi went on the Wanderer's Road and became a ronin. Prior to this story, we have seen him once, way back in the early Fantagraphics comics. And when he arrived on that panel, he was a human, Ooh, not weird. an animal. And so it's this really strange moment in the series because that goes back all the way to what Stan Sakai's early designs for this series were and for Nilsson Ground Thumper, which we talked about last episode, and how we were going to see the transition from goblins to humans. So Lord Hikiji is one of the early humans, and as such, he's one of the worst creatures on Earth. But Sakai has basically let that go, and when Lord Hikichi shows up in Usagi Ojimbo, which he will in our next episode in Senso, he's always wearing a mask, like one of those samurai warrior helmets, so you never see what he actually looks like, what animal he is. Oh, interesting. Long story short, he's a real POS. Okay, got it. We get to see... Tomoe's dad presents Tomoe to Lord Noriyuki's dad, who's Lord Mataichi, and he looks just like him. Yep. He's a big panda bear. Yep. And of course, Lord Mataichi is like, yay, I'd love to have her. That's great. She'll be right next to me all of the time. And then Lord Odo comes from the back and it goes like, hey, I think your wife, Lady Etsuko, is going to love her. And then, of course, Lord Mataichi is like, I think she'll be more suitable for the women's wing. I think that my Lady Etsuko is going to love her. And then it's like, I'm like, ugh. Like, son like father. <laughs> They're so malleable. Yeah, yeah very dead. And very their dense. right-hand man is always, like, the most evil guy. Yeah, and so that guy, uh, Odo, he lets in the Nico Ninjas, the Shinobi, and they go to work on the town. Luckily, Tomoe is near Lady Etsuko and the baby Lord Noriyuki, and she is able to defend them and slaughter all of these shinobi right before this baby's eyes. That page is so brilliant. That panel where she's like, get behind me, and she squares down. She's got both hands on her hilt, and she looks Fierce, a total beast with a sword. It's it's really satisfying to see her go to town on these ninja. And of course, Lady Etsuko is super impressed by her skills. And she says, I know this is unprecedented, but I think this woman should be the official protector of the Lord's heir. And that's how she ends up with Lord Noriyuki. So this reminds me of... Our last episode where we were talking about courage. Mm. And the first thing you have to do to uh, find where you should be courageous is to follow your passion. She clearly, Tomoe clearly had a passion for the blade. Mm. And despite uh, expectations, societal expectations, her father's expectations, she kept preparing to use this passion of hers and she was able to do it, and now she is in the right place. She is on a hero's path. Moving into the next issue, The Doors, remember this one was actually created in the early 90s. So what I love about that is how it makes references to previous adventures that happened in Usagi Yojimbo book 18, uh, Travels with Jotaro, but 
Stan Sakai wrote those stories after this one. And so he filled in like all the backstory regarding this uh, mystical ink set and the Tengu mountain goblin character, right? Who's so skilled at the sword, the unbeatable goblin. And what we have in the doors is a Come traditional- Come on, baby, light my fire. That's oh what I think gosh. every time we say no. those doors. <laughs> Come on, baby, No lizard my... kings here, Lisa. Uh, <laughs> what we have here is a very traditional ghost story. And we've encountered in Grasscutter, in the Mother of Mountains, spirits, uh, Jay, I mean, he's certainly uh, a creepy crawly dude, but the magical ink set, which uh, takes the, uh, the venom of the artist's heart and puts it out into reality is way out there supernatural shenanigans stuff. And I love it. I love when Usagi Yojimbo detours into these types of stories. What stood out to me in this story is the ending. So, of course, like all of Goemon's paintings come to life and they're fighting evil spiders and the mountain goblin guy. The snake, the snake terrorizes the town and it explodes out of the, the little castle. It just tears apart all those guards. Ew, gross. And, uh... But once Goemon is killed, all of those evil things he manifested are, they disappear. Yeah. Very traditional Twilight zone ending. Uh, but even more traditional and Twilight zone is, yes. of course, the paint set is also gone. And Usagi's concerned because, like, you know, it uses the evil within the painter. And the final few panels is there's a little child has picked up the ink set and he's just do painting child paintings, and it's a butterfly, and the butterfly floats up and flies yeah, away. Yeah, it could be used for good or evil. Exactly, which is the same as the sword or any other weapon. Oh, good point. Yeah. Oh, like, so the paint set is a sword, right? It, it, yeah, yeah, it's a reflection of the user. Oh, I like that, Lisa. Thank you. Uh, I don't really have much more else to say about this, especially in terms of the relationship of Tomoe and Usagi, but coming off of Tomoe's story, the flashback, it, you do see all the things that her father hoped for her or dreamed or or worried that he had injected into Tomoe. You know, it comes to fruition in here. She like she's at her best protecting Noriyuki and taking down all these uh, uh, spirits and creatures and, and what have you. What And protecting was, and protecting Noriyuki. What he was afraid of uh, didn't come to fruition. She was able to use her skills and they're not the source of humiliation for the family. Right. It's yeah. a source of pride. Yeah. The next chapter in the story is another one and done adventure centered around a Japanese folktale. The story here is called Foxfire and it's about how Tomoe and Usagi, while they're out on a stroll, they encounter a fox that is being chased by a group of hunters. Always a little interesting in Usagi Yojimbo stories when you encounter like a fox on four legs, when there are fox anthropomorphs uh, mm -hmm. wandering this universe as well. Always kind of interesting. Noriyuki has a dog. What's the evolution here? At what point does a dog go, I'm just going to keep walking like this. Yeah, I'm not putting pants on today. I think it's today. best not to question it. It just <laughs> is what it is. Baby but, Yoda eats a frog. It's always weird to me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just move on. Just move on. What's important here is that this fox in flight from these hunters jumps inside Usagi's outfit and hides away. And Tomoe and Usagi keep mum as the hunters uh, ask for directions. Like, did you see this fox? We got to find this fox. It's liver. It, it's, it's gold to us. We need this liver. And so they point in the direction of the woods where clearly the fox did not run and they go off. And 
Tomoy is so charmed by Usagi's behavior. She thinks he's being so funny. And he's going like, was that unfair of me to not point them in the right direction? And she's like, well, it was worth it to me because it was hilarious. Now, they were pretty far from home because it begins to rain and they're like, well, we can't make it back. So we're just going to go to the nearest shelter, which is this little house nearby. Which is a nice little house. It's, yeah, it's, it's like a cozy, cozy cottage. Yeah, and, and they knock on the door and then they meet Kuzunoa, uh, who invites them in and they get out of the rain and they have a nice meal together. Well, nice to Usagi. Right, Usagi. is like, this is like trash food. And, and Usagi's like, yum, yum, yum. So there's something a little off and they go to bed uh, and and Usagi is extremely comfortable in his bed but Tomoe's like well this isn't comfortable at all they wake up the next day Usagi's had a wonderful night's sleep uh, he's feeling totally refreshed and recharged and Tomoe's like what is going on with this dude and of course like to us it's like clearly Usagi is smitten with this beautiful fox lady Who's and, not the fox, but is a fox lady. Yeah. And Tomoy is getting a little annoyed and jealous. Like, that's how it looks on its face. Tomoy's ready to amscray, but Usagi wants to hang around. Yeah, but, and, but he's like, she's given us such hospitality. I feel like- We I, owe her something. Yeah, that I particularly owe her something. Right, right. I'm a, I feel obliged. And Tomoy's like, just get, leave some coins or something. And he's like- no way. And she's like, well, if you're staying, I'm staying. He's like, you do whatever you want. I don't care what you're so doing. So Usagi goes for another stroll with uh, Kuzunoa, and Tomoe decides to follow them from a, a distance. She's she's keeping shadow with him. And what she discovers is that when they pass by this lake, Kuzunoa's reflection is not humanoid, but that of a quadruped, of a four-legged fox. And she now knows, oh, no. Usagi's in trouble. He has been trapped by a fox demon. And that fox demon, I guess, is taking him, luring him to her little fox coven where shifty things are going to happen, I suppose. And Anyone who has seen the first season of Lovecraft Country goes, nine-tailed fox demons, watch out. They're pretty watch scary. Out. You don't want those nine tails to come out mm -mm. of any Unless any you kind of do, because it was kind of hot in like a weird, <laughs> creepy way. So she's luring Usagi away, but then Tomoe has a little face-off with this fox demon and manages to scrape the fox demon's face, cut it, so she sees that it can be killed, because if it can be injured, it can be killed. Like Predator. But uh, Kuzunoa is getting the upper hand on her. But then a fox bursts from the forest. The fox from the beginning of this story. Exactly, and attacks the fox demon, getting injured, but making it so that Tomoe can get Usagi away. And once Usagi's away, she's able to snap him out of the curse. And he wants to get revenge on her for charming him. But Tomoe's like, well, now you've seen her true self. You're snapped out of it. So she's no longer a threat to you. Hey, karma's going to take care of her anyway, because those hunters, they come back and they show her a bad time with an arrow through the chest. That's right. And then they stay another couple of days to tend to the fox's wounds until he is healthy again. And I, what I like is that Usagi actually stays a little longer than Tomoe does. Tomoe goes back to Lord Noriyuki, and the last page of this story is her telling the adventure of Foxfire to the panda. And uh, the final panel is Usagi saying goodbye to his new friend, the fox. 
Yeah. What I love about this issue is we get to see Tomoy be a little possessive yeah. about Usagi because the change in his behavior towards Kuzunoha, I don't think would have appeared suspicious except for the fact that he was acting differently towards Tomoy. I think in a story like this, we notice that there is more between these two characters than just friendship. Like, And she felt that leave. Yeah, yeah. She felt like, she felt something interfering a with threat. their- She felt a threat. Interfering with their connection. And that was what gave her the end to snap him out of this curse. And, you know, who doesn't get a little bit jealous every once in a while? <laughs> That's a your problem, Lisa, because I don't really get jealous you too don't. often. You don't. You really ever. don't. But if I ever see you talking to another lady <laughs> who knows more about comics than I do, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. then, I, then I get all hot and bothered. No, you don't need to. You don't need to. Uh, what I like about these two stories, The Doors and Foxfire, is that they are very like fun, spooky, weirdo, supernatural stories that lead directly into a tale that appears to be the same on the surface, the ghost in the well. Yeah, I think it's funny, and I guess we'll get into this, but like they enter a story that appears to be a ghost story, but they're still pretty skeptical about ghosts. Where I'm like, well, you literally just face down a fox demon. Like, so to me, like, a ghost is just like one species away from a floating fox demon. Like, why is it so weird? Why the skepticism that it might be a ghost? Because Stan Sakai needs Usagi to be skeptical in this moment. It's a, it's a convenience for story. Yeah, he's necessary telling- for he's, story. He's telling like a- Scooby-Doo style mystery. That's such a great way to describe this story, Scooby-Doo. I mean, it is a very much an episode of Scooby-Doo. What's going on is that Usagi is behind the walls of the White Heron Castle. He's hanging out, getting a little of that taste of feudal existence, but he can't really enjoy it because Tomoe is busy with this trade negotiation that's going on with Lord Dida and his guards are everywhere. They have traveled with him during this time and someone murders one of Dida's guards. And when that's happening, Usagi is taking a little stroll through the grounds near this well and he thinks he sees someone or something scurry away. And his, when his shirt gets ripped, he sees a, a branch get torn. And, and so when he learns that there has been a murder, he goes, well, maybe it was that thing that we saw by the well. And that's when Tomoe tells him, well, that, that well has some history. About 10 years ago, there was this maid who fell in love with like a mid-level samurai named Oyoyama. And they had a relationship, but it was a, he's just not that into you situation. <laughs> so she um, called him to the well to plead with him one last time. And he went to meet her and she threw herself down the well. And since then, people had been hearing crying by the well. So the well was assumed cursed and sealed shut. And since then, Oyoyama had gone crazy and committed suicide. Tomoe tells Usagi this story after he comes to her and says, like, I think I saw someone over by this well. And then what happens is the body of the guard is discovered. An alarm is rung. 
Usagi and Tomoe run to the scene of the crime, and the head guard, the head samurai of the other clan, the visiting clan, Masamune, he immediately goes like, well, who's this rabbit Ronin? What's his deal? Tomoe steps in, vouches for him. And now Usagi is involved in the investigation, despite Masamune's suspicions. Now, this is something out of the respect chapter that I mentioned in the introduction that I'm like, we're skipping this one. But introductions in Japanese culture are a big deal. Introductions are not made lightly. And then once the introduction is made, it has to be, it's it's accepted in a way where if he stated his, um, suspicions too forwardly, it would be intact. It would be like attacking Tomoy's integrity. So now there is all of this tension between Usagi, who knows that he sees something, he has seen something that is like suspiciously vague. Like Tomoy goes like, hey, Usagi saw something, like tell them what you saw. And he's like, I literally, I mean, I saw some leaves. I saw some leaves move by and a sh- my shirt. And like Masamune out loud is like, is this why you find this guy so helpful? Is it those wonderful answers that he gives? So there's this like beautiful kind of funny interplay in between like these two guys don't trust each other and yet they're both too polite and respectful and have too much integrity to call each other out well, on and it. Yeah, societal norms won't allow them to call each other out. Exactly. Another thing worth mentioning is even though it was Daida's guards and Masamune's men who I guess did a terrible job of guarding and <laughs> happened to get killed, uh, Tomoe goes out of her way to say, like, I'm taking responsibility for this death because you are on our land, you're on Gaishu land, and therefore we take responsibility. And then later, when Daira is with Lord Noriyuki, Lord Noriyuki again goes like, we take full responsibility for this murder, and it's on our integrity, so to speak, to make this right. And Daida's like, you know, that guard, I mean, he was a low-level, incompetent guard. We saw him. He was yawning. (laughs) Seriously, don't worry about it. But Lord Noriyuki goes like, no, we're going to make this right. So clearly it's a matter of integrity that they solve this murder and they bring the murderer to justice because it's Gaishu land. They are charged with keeping it safe. Part one ends with Tomoe and Usagi talking about Masamune. Uh, He's giving them a really suspicious eye. And as a reader at this point in time, you're going like, this Masamune, you know, He's 100% responsible for this murder. He's got to be the killer, right? (laughs) Because there's always like one suspicious dude in these comments, and he's always the one, clearly the one who does the murdering. But there's more to meet the eye with that guy. Uh, That rhymes. I'm a poet, and I didn't know it. On to issue two of this story, The Ghost in the Well, part two. This issue is primarily an action issue, and it opens up with Lord Daida and Masamune Uh, getting attacked uh, by unseen forces, although Masamune spots three silhouettes that look like ninja. Meanwhile, Usagi is sitting on the porch and he's like, you know what? I'm going to be the one to get to the bottom of this murder. And I'm pretty sure it has something to do with that well. So he goes back to the well and he's fiddling around and he realizes 
that the well isn't actually nailed shut. Dun, dun, dun. He can lift the slats and there's like a little turny thing where it can be closed and locked it's from underneath. It's a secret passageway. Exactly. Ninja. Then he hears the alert that assassins are about and so he runs to I, go help. I love this. And the first thing Saburo does, who's Masamune's last name, the, the first thing he does is like, Usagi, I knew you were behind this. Is this is such a Marvel comic situation where like Captain Marvel and Iron Man, they have a misunderstanding and they just start fighting each other. Usagi's like, you jerk, don't you realize I'm just trying to help here? But thankfully like Tomoe comes in and breaks the bros apart. And now that the fighting is stopped, Usagi has time to tell them about the trick well, which they go to check out and together they find these Neko ninjas who have these clawed sickles on the end of a chain. So how, that's how they've been attacking without leaving footprints. Master of the flying guillotine. Luckily, there are three ninjas and three samurai. So each take one, the numbers work out. I really like how Stan Sakai in this page, which is like 111 on the trade paperback, book 22, you get at the top three panels of the three ninjas attacking. You have then on the second section of the page, Usagi diving, Tomoe diving. Then the penultimate panel is Masamune. He uh, uh, deflects one of the claws. And then the final panel is like this punctuation where it's like, okay, these three ninjas, they're coming at us, not gonna ma matter. We've got three badasses standing tall next to each other, finally united and ready for war. Another artist would make that panel the splash page, yeah. right? But here, it's a period on a sentence, and it's such a powerful sentence. These ninja are screwed. So you flip the page. Usagi and Saburo managed to make pretty quick work outsmarting their two ninja, but unfortunately, Tomoe's gets away and dashes down the well. And Tomoe goes to go after him, but Usagi is like, there's probably a huge ninja ambush down there. <laughs> and so she doesn't go, but then there's this blood curdling scream and they pull up on the rope that the ninja is using to climb down. And he has been hanged by the rope and entangled around him is the mortal remains of Okiko. So the while maid. it is a Scooby-Doo story where the supernatural force turns out to be a, a very human a, a, assailant, there is also a supernatural force at play. But then it, there's another mystery we didn't even know that we were solving. True. Because uh, they take a look at Okiko's remains and there is a cleave in her skull. So it turns out that Aoyama had murdered her so he would have the opportunity to marry above his station. And so when he ultimately went crazy, it was out of guilt for murdering her. And Tomoe is content to bring her a final piece in her resting place with a proper burial. Stan Sakai is eating his cake and having it too. He's getting his ghost story and his ninja story. This is why we love Usagi Yojimbo. And we go, yum, yum, yum. Your cake is yum, delicious, yum, Stan. Yum. But that that isn't even the end of the issue. There's a huge reveal <laughs> at the end of this story where you remember back when we were like, that Masamune, he's, he seems to be he's looking- fishy. Yeah, there's something going on with him. Turns out that while he was on this 
trade agreement mission. He was also on a separate secret mission. He's a love spy. To check out Tomoe to see if she would be a proper wife for Lord Ito, who is like this massive, like, what is he, an otter? He's got like an otter nose he's, and beaver teeth. Yeah, he's he's like a beaver. I was woodchuck? thinking maybe a mole, a woodchuck. Yeah, woodchuck, other teeth maybe. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But he's going he's gonna to marry off with Tomoe. How do you feel about that? I feel sorry for Tomoe. Oh, he's a cute old man, but yeah, he's no Ozaki. No, I mean, have you seen Usagi's body? Uh, yeah, we've talked about it it's last ripped. issue. It's super ripped. But that final panel with Lord Idu kind of hangs over the rest of this book during all of the interactions with Usagi and Tomoe. Even though Tomoe has no idea. Right, right. It's all, but the reader knows, and that's what's important. The next story, The Thief and the Lotus Scroll, begins with Tomoe and Usagi walking through the streets of the town, right? Outside the castle. And Usagi breaks it to her that he's planning on leaving the next day. And she's like, you know, like, I wish you wouldn't leave. You're always welcome here in our province. And Usagi's like, you know, your friendship really does me honor. And then they hear somebody shouting thief. Right, because a scroll has been stolen from the temple. And of course, what happens is they stumble upon a street performer who Usagi has had many dealings with in the past, Kitsune, uh, who is a fox, a real fox, a fox in more ways than one. And she is performing this song and dance regarding the events of the doors and the legend of Tomoe taking down this mystical spider creature born from a pen and ink set. And Kitsune is known for doing whatever she has to do to get by, meaning she will steal uh, from whomever. And when Usagi sees her and he hears that the Lotus Temple has been pilfered, he immediately goes like, oh no, oh no, it's got to be Kitsune. But how can that possibly be? Because here she is and the thief happened over here. There's got to be some other uh, culprit. And that is Kyoko, the child who is the little sister in quotation marks uh, that belongs to Kitsune. You're skipping over something that I do want to point out is after the fan dance that she does about Tomoe, Tomoe goes to talk to the police and Usagi asks her directly, "Right, do you have anything to do with this scroll that's missing? And she says, I swear on our friendship uh, that I did not steal that scroll. And she's not lying. And because of the rules of integrity, he's literally from this point on never allowed to call her on it because they are friends Got and it. she has sworn. I think that's important. What I love about this first meeting between Kitsune and Tomoe is how Kitsune goes on the attack and she wants to get rid of them both because she knows that Kyoko is the one who took the Lotus Scroll and will be back any minute and she needs these two uh, squares to jet. But And to do that, she uses her possible sexual tension with Usagi to shoo them both off. Well, I think that she catches a vibe from Tomoe and Usagi and she exploits it. Because when Tomoe is like, so how do you two know each other? So Usagi is like, well, you know, we've uh, crossed uh, paths uh, from time to time. He downplays their relationship. Yeah. And so she goes like, 
We've more than crossed paths. And she goes so far as to touch Usagi's face. And he is so embarrassed. And Tomoe looks so furious. I mean, Kitsune says we've shared many adventures and other things together. And, you know, Usagi tries to like, oh, 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 like, what do you mean by other things? And Kitsune says, oh, you know, just a meal or two and nothing a woman of Lady Tomoe's position would want to hear. And Tomoe goes, you would be surprised at what a woman in my position hears. And she's got this real look of disgust. She's uh, maybe she is a little jealous in this moment. And she full on storms off. Yeah, goodbye. And Usagi is so angry at Kitsune. And he makes it clear to her before he chases Tomoe, like, hey, wait. The final panel of that page is Kitsune looking so, so pleased with herself. Yeah, she, she thinks it's hilarious. Later, we see Usagi and Tomoe at a restaurant. And Tomoe is like, are you, are you really planning on leaving tomorrow? And he's like, yes, I am. And she goes like, well, then I would really like you to come and so I can perform Chinoyu for you, which is the tea ceremony before he leaves. And he says, it would truly be my honor. They leave the restaurant and decide to go on a little walk, but then Tomoe catches Kitsune down the street and she's like, can we, I do not want to talk to Kitsune. Can we please walk down another street? Which like for me, I get this huge wash of like, I feel you sister. Like to me, I avoid people on the street that I like. Like yeah. there's nothing worse than running into someone and having to chit chat, especially if you're uncomfortable with that person. In a in a relationship way, like that lady likes your man, you know, I don't I just don't even want to look at her face. Right. But Usagi is like, you know what? I think I can solve the mystery of the Lotus Scroll like right now. Since the last time we saw Kitsune and Kyoko, they've had a really hard time trying to unload this scroll. No one wants to take it. Because it's too conspicuous. Like if anybody, if you bought that scroll, people would be like, hey, isn't that the scroll from the temple? Right. But there is one mob boss who tried to purchase the scroll from the temple. And when he hears that it has now been stolen, while he can't steal from a temple, he can steal from another thief. So the scroll can now finally be his. So right before Usagi approaches, Kitsune and Kyoko are attacked by the thugs of this other boss thief. And Tomoe gets to be the hero in that situation. And she and Usagi fight off all of these thugs. Although Kyoko and Kitsune are quite capable. I mean, they are punching down these goons. Uh, Kitsune has a little blade. She kills some dudes. I don't want to give Kitsune any credit. I'm team Tomoe. <laughs> Kitsune and Kyoko would be like a roadkill if it wasn't for her. I, you only feel that way because you started your journey with Usagi Ojimbo with the idea of Tomoe and Usagi being OTP, which they're my OTP. I forced that on you. <laughs> we could have done a whole series between Usagi and Kitsune where you would have fallen for her first. Whatever. <laughs> um, the important thing is once all of the thugs are destroyed, Kitsune starts weaving her little tail and she goes like, oh, we have the Lotus Scroll because we <laughs> actually recovered it from these thugs. And Tomoe's like, that's very commendable, but you really should have alerted the authorities. And Kyoko is the one who goes, 
maybe there's some kind of reward, do you think? And Tomoya's like, yeah, of course. And Usagi steps in and was like, but you wouldn't be recovering this for the reward. Like, you would never profit from crime, would you? And Kitsune is like, she's caught. And so she's like, of course not. I would never profit from crime. And Kyoko is like, what are you you talking talking about? about? And Tomoe is like, I've really misjudged this lady. She's actually really wonderful. And she goes like, before you go, I should give you some money out of my purse for your travels. And so she goes to reach for her purse. And she's like, that's weird. My purse is missing. Yoink. And Katuni's like, oh, never mind. I have plenty of money for my travel. And she starts wandering off. And Usagi starts laughing because Usagi knows, of course, Katsune has stolen Tomoe's purse. So why does Usagi allow for that theft to occur, but not allow for Katsune to you know, get the reward? Because when he asked her if she had stolen the Lotus Scroll, she... She swore on their friendship and implied that she had nothing to do with it, but clearly she did have something to do with it. So him not letting her take the reward was like him calling out her integrity. Like, well, you're going to have – this is – his way of making her save face yeah. and restore Because her of the rules she set up in that previous situation, this is how he gets to go like, ha-ha, ha-ha, you did it. I also think that pointing out to Tomoe that her purse got stolen by Kitsune would be embarrassing oh, to Tomoe. It would, to, I mean, she would explode with rage. Yes, because uh, she's a samurai. She's supposed to be like all knowing, all body awareness and stuff. And to have this kind of petty thief pinch her purse would be just the worst. Okay, I think we can now move on to the final chapter, the final issue of Tomoe's story, which is Chinoyu. This is the comic that made me want to cover uh, Usagi and Tomoe as a couple on this podcast. This issue, I think, is one of the great comic book single issues. It's a masterpiece of on its own. It belongs in a museum. Uh, Dr. Jones should have unearthed this <laughs> with the Ark of the Covenant. Like, this book is so special to me. And I think what makes it so incredibly unique is it could be your first Usagi Yojimbo comic book, and you would get, for the most part, all the beats that Stan Sakai wants you to get. I think you would see the unrequited romance between Usagi and Tomoe. You would feel their longing for each other. And you would say, this is this is a really interesting story. Clearly, Stan Sakai has done a lot of research and has a lot of passion for this ceremony. He does a fantastic job depicting it in all its tiny little Uh, rituals with all its little rules and regulations. Wow, like Sakai is clearly um, committed to capturing Japanese life at this time. And I I guess also just like uh, this ritual. He's, He's clearly committed to capturing this ritual. Okay, that's your first Usagi Yojimbo comic. You would dig it. You'd want to go back and read more. If you read this comic where it falls after having read every single... Usagi and Tomoe encounter before this, you have the exact same 
experience as the first time reader, except now the emotion hits way harder. The emotion you feel is the same emotions that Usagi and Tomoe feel. To me, this is like their opposite of a wedding, mm. where like in a wedding you have this ritual where you invite all of your family and friends, you swear your love to each other, and then you are forever bound together by that ritual, where they're having this extremely, their love is bringing them together in this extremely private ritual. And in that ritual, they're essentially swearing to each other that nothing can come of their love. Yeah. And yeah. it's heartbreaking. It's so sensual and chaste. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, it's it's like, this is like a comic that would be easy to fetishize, right? <laughs> um, I think if you want to know a little bit more about how Sakai breaks from the structure of previous Usagi Ojimbo comics, I would point the listeners to Mark Toretsky's article that he wrote for Shelf Dust, uh, the title of which is There Are Things That Are Hidden, Usagi Ojimbo number 93. It's an exceptional piece breaking down this story panel by panel and what uh, Stan Sakai does differently in this issue from what he has done before. Like he breaks the status quo, uh, not necessarily of narrative or character, but of form. Mm -hmm. And Turetsky's article is really, really fantastic. I'll put links in the show notes to the article. Brad read it to me. And I think the best way to read this article is to have the issue yes. or the book open yes. next to you because mm -hmm. he goes to a level of specifics that are even more delightful if you have the comic in your hand. Absolutely, absolutely. I think it is important to note that this story is predominantly told without words. Sakai loves to fill up his panels with word balloons and uh, thought balloons. Particularly of Usagi. Yeah, and he likes to uh, give little like um, history uh, asterisks. We do get one on the first page, you know, the title is Chinoyu, and then in the bottom we see that Chinoyu means tea ceremony. But from that point forward, very little in terms of words. Uh, it's 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 all visual, and what we see is Usagi approaching the tea house, and it's a very leisurely paced approach. He walks through her garden on the stone path. He sits outside the tea house waiting for Tomoe, who finally comes and opens the gate, and we get like a little sound effect. And that's like the first word, if you can call it that, of the comic. And it's it's like the creak of the gate opening. And there's Tomoe. And they, you know, bow to each other. He follows after her. And then he approaches this little um, like water basin. He washes his hands, takes a sip from the bucket, and he then goes to the house. He leaves his swords outside. He takes his shoes off. He walks in and he sees this banner. And normally when we see a banner with some kanji, Sakai would translate it. But there is no translation here at this point. But he looks impressed. Tomoe enters from a separate sliding door and she's carrying a water container and she offers him some sweets and he comments on the banner as well as a floral arrangement, 
which have been done by Tamoy. And Tamoy points out that in the floral arrangement, there is a pine spring that um, symbolizes longevity and Camilla, which is a flower that represents purity. So you think about their relationship, their old friends, and their their love for each other has is pure. Yeah, and the kanji translates to welcome. And Tamoy says, as you are always welcome in our lives, Usagi-san. And he notices that the brush strokes are exquisite. And he says they're, they're strongly feminine. And you have these talents that I didn't even know about. And she, this is a direct quote. She says, even between good friends, there are things that are hidden. Yeah, it's so good. And Usagi's like, that's friendship. More is revealed over time. And then she looks away and she's like, sure. Um, there's two things I want to say about that moment. And one is actually from our love guru, uh, from the benevolence chapter, where um, samurai were encouraged to take um, take an interest in the arts, which is why we get a lot of samurai writing so ha doing these floral arrangements and learning kanji is part of her samurai training but clearly in this moment she's not strictly talking about you know i have <laughs> look i'm art i'm artsy fartsy as well aren't i fun like clearly right. there is so much going on in this ritual that's going unsaid and i feel like that's why this has to be this very strict ritual because if it wasn't chinoyu they wouldn't be able to say goodbye without tearing each other's through, clothes off. Through the restrictions, they are allowed to say so much by saying nothing. Like, it is so powerful. This is like such a gift. This ceremony is such a gift to a creator with this relationship. It allows them to express their love without... Expressing their love. Without spoiling her commitment to yeah. her feudal lord mm -hmm. so that she's able to maintain her integrity. They go through the rest of the ceremony saying very little, and that's actually part of the ritual. There are very specific times where Usagi, as the guest, is obliged to say certain things. Everything that happens in this issue is part of the ritual. Sakai does not improv on the ritual. So when people talk, it's when these people are supposed to talk. But whenever that talking happens, it is just like pregnant yes. with meaning. So when he comments on the t flavor of the tea, he notes the bitterness. Like he's like, <laughs> yeah. th there's like a bitterness, a really tasteful bitterness in this tea, the bitterness of life. Yeah. to match its sweetness. So having to say goodbye to her and not being able to hold her is that it's bitterness. Hurt. It's hurt. Is that yeah. bitterness of life for him. The ceremony ends and he sets this bowl down between them. And then suddenly we as the reader get a panel from outside of the tea house where we see the shape of the tea house we see, we see and hear the splish of the water. And then we see the center panel where it's a rock 
tied in a rope, where when I read this, I didn't understand what that meant. Yeah, Sakai has notes in the back, and he sort of explains it. I mean, he does explain it. Yeah, he's he's cheeky about it. He's cheeky about it. He says... The bound stone on page 18 of Chinoyu, page 164 of our book, indicates a path that is forbidden to take. A comment on the relationship of Usagi and Tomoe? Perhaps. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. Why would you say? You wrote it, (laughs) sir, friend. But those panels indicate that some time has passed. And on the bottom of that page, uh, the final two panels is one panel of Usagi facing left and another panel of Tomoe facing right. Even though they are looking at each other in the room, Sakai shows that they are walking away from each other, that they are sitting away from each other. Their destinies are apart. He thanks Tomoe sincerely and he leaves silently. And after he leaves, we get this panel of Tomoe with this pained expression where she's looking towards the sky. So clearly she was restraining so much emotion when she was performing this ceremony. We watch Usagi then leave by the same stone path he approached from, and he continues to look tranquil, and the panels continue to be silent. Yeah, no word balloons, no thought balloons. Despite the fact that he's walking through a fairly boisterous town. Yeah, there's like a thief. Like, a woman is chasing a thief at one point, and he's not paying any attention. (laughs) He is just completely on a different plane of existence. And once the Gaishu township the is, province is in the distance he finally looks back and says goodbye to moy so the first time i read this um having read every single issue leading up to it i cried this <sighs> this time reading it i still cried did it affect you as profoundly as it did me I would love to say that I cried. I did not cry at the Uh end of this comic. That's okay. No shame. I'm not trying to shame you into crying. But I was moved. I did Mm. find it very beautiful. And you can see why I really wanted to cover this couple because of this one issue. Yeah, there's so much going on in this moment. And I'm kind of going like, where could they possibly go from here? Like, how can there be another volume for us to read after this? Well, I mean... Senso, we're going to get into Senso. It's a very unique story, and we can talk about that more next week. Uh, but Tomoe leaves Usagi Ojimbo, the book, for a very, very, very long time after this story. Like how long? Like, like this is what, 2006, did I say when it came out? Yeah, 2006. So uh, she appears in Senso. But again, I don't want to talk about her appearance in Senso. I don't want to talk about Senso right now. But like she like it's 2020 and we have not had the next moment after this. Oh, no. Like, so the next time we meet her, she could be married to that woodchuck guy. Yes, yes, yes. <gasps> well, we, we're going to read Senso. We're going to okay. read Senso. And like, so like the way... Uh, 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 I don't want to spoil your senso. Uh, the way senso works is it's many, 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 many years. There's a huge time jump for senso. So, so it's like a flash it, forward kind of senso thing. Senso is kind of like the last Usagi is or Jimbo like, story. Is it like Old Man Logan? Yes. Oh, it's like no. Old Man Logan or when Marvel does the end, like this is the last 
Punisher story. This is the last X-Men story. It's like, it, it's almost, uh, I don't want to call it a fantasy, but it's a, it's like, like a, a ghost of Christmas future. Yes, yes, yes. See, keeping it seasonal. Happy holidays, you guys. <laughs> but like, that's the awesome thing about Stan Sakai is that this big section, Tomoe story, the mother of mountains, that'll conclude and then we'll have a whole arc with Inspector Ishida, you know, and you'll have many, 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 many stories with that. There are so many stories in a person's life and characters come into your life and they leave and they come back and long passages of time occur. And, Sakai, and it's also like comic book time. So like yep, yep, that's they're true. coming out maybe once a month. Yes. But it can literally be like the next day, the next moment. Yeah, correct. Correct. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, you know, uh, you know, I, it, it, yeah, I'm certainly anticipating the next Tomoe story if it ever happens. Now that I know that Chinoyu is like the last of Tomoe, I'm going like this Tomoe I'm going to get. I'm like ready to throw my laptop against the wall. Uh, I, I mean, I'm ready to like table flip. I we that's why we're we've got Senso, Lisa. We've got Senso and it's a it's a very important story. It's one of my favorite Usagi Ojimbo stories. Brad loves an old man story. I do like an old man story. I do like an old man story. Yes, that's true. But Senso is not an old man story. Okay. All right. So <laughs> where are we, Lisa? Where are we with this book right here? Book 22, Tomoe story. I loved it. Yeah! I really found this super fun. Did you like it more than Mother of Mountains? Because you liked Mother of Mountains more than Grasscutter. Yes, yes. I, I think and you were concerned about entering into an anthology format. To me, for me, those last three issues really sealed it for me. Mm -hmm. Like, those first couple of issues, I was like, that's a fun jaunt. Mm -hmm. But I think that I found the ghost story to be so charming and then, like, you bring in this other thing with uh, Lord Ito, and is that going to happen? And now with Chinoyu, I just, I feel like the stakes for them are just so extremely high, the romantic stakes. Yeah, I mean, I definitely agree. And I think, honestly, because Chinoyu is such an extraordinary comic and it deals with their relationship— they are my OTP because of this one issue. There are other dalliances, right? There's Kitsune, okay? And like you, you have a lot of fun with those two together and the tension between those two characters. But they don't have a story like Chinoyu. And because Chinoyu is so good, Tomoe and Usagi are the couple of the saga. Oh, man. And knowing that it literally like goes nowhere, like I get the... I, I can't, I get something blue in my pants. Uh, I don't want to be crude. I, I, let's have this conversation after Senso. I am very curious to know your answer to this final part of the podcast. You know, like, what did you see of yourself in these comics? What are you pulling out of Tomoe's story? What are you pulling out of Let the Samurai Be Your Guide this week? I'm going to have to go second this week. Oh, yeah? I, I do not have a prepared answer. Oh, man, that's surprising. Because I actually have, like, uh, I have something, right? Okay. You know, clearly we don't have a relationship like Usagi and Tomoe. Um, but also it's obvious that... I'm one of those people who fetishizes the Chinoyu episode and I fetishize their unrequited romance, right? So I was thinking, what are the things that we do? What are the rituals we do Ooh. where things are not 
said specifically, but we tell each other how we feel about each other in our actions. You know, like there are the basic dumb household chore things, right? Mm -hmm. Like you hate doing dishes. That is true. And I never liked doing dishes, but because you hate doing dishes, now when I do dishes, I get this little thrill. Like I get the joy of doing something you hate because I love you. Uh, same with like laundry or taking care of the car and getting the oil changed. Those are all things that I do not do. Like you, you, you hate all of that stuff. And it's stuff that I don't like, but I kind of like them because you hate them. And I get a little, and I do get a little thrill having those things done for me. And so that you're saying that that's like your chinoyu, yeah, I mean, like the, that you presenting the bowl. Like. It's not per. It's like it's not a one for one. Uh, therefore, like I I would like to find things that are more one on one comparisons to chinoyu. We are two people who are pretty bad at rituals. <laughs> like I think about myself in particular. Like I, there is not one thing I do on the reg the same every single time. I feel like you're more ritualistic than I, I am. I put my wallet by the breakfast bar every time. Your you, wallet explodes into every <laughs> shadowy corner, but it's a different corner every day. Where you literally get up, you brush your teeth, yeah. you shower, you do all of that stuff in the same order, where I some mornings want to jump in the shower, some mornings I brush my teeth first. Like yeah. So, like, I'm... I'm the kind of personality where I am opposed. Like my my brain rejects ritual. And I also like I feel like between me and Brad, I also do not I don't don't leave a lot left unsaid. You know what I mean? Like <laughs> sure. if, if I'm feeling like if I have if I'm feeling love, yeah. and I'm in a completely different like room I'll go like I love you or like yeah. if I'm feeling anxiety like you know yeah we've talked about this on the podcast in the past like like I will go and brood and I will not uh be forthcoming with my negative emotions whereas you will not allow me to brood and you will prod and pry until it's out in the open yeah but I do I am attracted to the idea of going like let's Tr create a ritual and try to stick to it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And a ritual that's about us as a couple. Yeah. We got to figure out what that is. We're not going to figure that out this moment, but I, I want to give it a shot. One thing that we've never really nailed is having our own Christmas. Mm -hmm. Like our Christmas is always Family. taken up by, yeah. Pandemic might help us in this front. <laughs> <laughs> Where like... I'm generally working yeah. on Christmas because I am a musician. Um, and then we go to your parents and we go to my parents because everybody's local. And and so our Chris like our thing with Christmas is just like some like last year and the year before that, we didn't even give each other gifts. That's right. And we're not, I wasn't planning on giving you a gift this year. Should we change but, that? But maybe it doesn't have to be like a gift. Maybe it just needs to be a ritual that's like, okay, our Christmas, our love Christmas will be the 26th mm. because my birthday is the 27th. Right, right. And so there's like um, 
comedian Doug Benson calls the time in between Christmas and New Year's the taint of the holidays because it taints Christmas and it taints New Year's. So, like, we could have our own little Christmas ritual something in that taint between my Christmas and my birthday. Okay. All right. All right. I like that idea. Because uh, I generally have that day off, too. We'll, we'll have to get back to our listeners to see if we actually achieve that. But I, 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 want, I want our chinoyu. I want our ritual. And I would love to experiment with not saying things. <laughs> Let's create some sexual tension up in here. <laughs> oh, man. No comment on that either. My takeaway has been more about meditating on the idea of integrity because sometimes I have a little bit of guilt around my my sense of integrity because sometimes integrity can be misinterpreted as everybody you meet knows you as a whole person and everybody knows every deal every little detail about what you think and what you say and everybody knows exactly who you are sure but like I tend to be like, it seems like I go onto this podcast and I'm just laying it all out there. But in actuality, I'm a pretty private person. And I feel like there are certain aspects of myself or certain opinions that I have. Sure, that, this podcast has gotten you into trouble. <laughs> that depends on like, if I know that a certain opinion of mine is going to upset a certain family member of mine. Yeah. Like, I'm not going to say it. I would much rather just like keep that opinion to myself and either smile and nod along or just express that I understand what they're saying and like move on. And sometimes I can feel like, am I a duplicitous person? Because I am just doling out sure. information about myself in a judicious way. And then I kind of keep track of who I've I've told what. And... Um, I think that this book helped me change my perspective on what integrity is. You mean let the samurai be your guide? Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, like the idea that integrity doesn't mean that everybody knows every single detail about you. Yeah. But more about like mm. you're a person who knows their principles and sticks by their principles but then also respects other people's principles and presumes that that other person is acting with integrity and doesn't call out other people's integrity. Your principles are your principles, and as long as you're living by your principles, you're good. Yes, and as long as you allow other people to live by their principles, everything is right in the world. Things are harmonious. Yeah, I feel that. I get that. I and and I think you you do have integrity, Lisa. And Thank we you. all share different faces to different people. And to say otherwise is to lie, okay? Um, but that like that's I think that's a good place to end this episode. This episode's a lot longer than I had anticipated because you know it's such a shorter volume, but there's so many different stories we had to cover a lot more plot. Uh, and hell, we love this comic so much. Uh, you get you get a few extra minutes with us. But next week, as we mentioned, uh, we're continuing down the Wanderer's Road with Miyamoto Usagi and Tomoe Ame, and we're at an end. And our final destination will occur when we discuss a major event series, Usagi Ojimbo Senso. Lisa, you are in for a treat with this one. Here's the setup. Imagine if H.G. Wells' War of the Worlds crash-landed in feudal Japan. 
and those damn dirty octopus <laughs> aliens went to battle with Miyamoto, Tomoe, Ame, and friends. Oh, so no. many friends. This is an alternate universe situation? I'm not saying. I'm not saying. This book is crazy interesting, though, and operates a little bit like I said, like I said the final Usagi Yojimbo story even though many more comics have come out since this one. That's it. That's all I'm going to say. I'm so excited for our, our next episode. But Lisa, where can our listeners send their words of affirmation to you this week? Where can they send their suggestions for more Tomoe and Usagi stories if they have them? Ooh, I'm always accepting words of affirmation and suggestions. You know, I am never open for criticism. <laughs> At Sidewalk Siren on Twitter and Instagram. If you have words of affirmation for our logo, you can send them to Aaron Prescott at a cool hand fluke. If you have some words of affirmation for our radical banner art, send them over to at Karen underscore X Men fan. Brad. Yes. Where can our listeners send their words of affirmation to you? You can find me on all social medias at MouthDork. Uh, not on TikTok, but maybe I should be. If you'd like to spend more quality time with us, you can subscribe to us on Podbean, Spotify, Stitcher, YouTube, and iTunes. If you'd like to get exclusive, you can now join our Patreon community where you'll get more content, including weekly bonus episodes. This past week, we broke down the entire Punisher trilogy. Yes, that's right. Dolph Lundgren, Thomas Jane, Ray Stevenson. Who's the best Frank Castle? Subscribe to our Patreon. Find out. We have the definitive answer. If you'd like to reach out and touch us electronically, you can email the podcast, cbccpodcast at gmail.com. You can visit our website, comicbookcouplescounseling.com, or you can follow us on Instagram and Twitter at cbccpodcast. You can give us the gift of five stars on iTunes, and if you'd like to do an active service, why not write a review of the show while you're there? We are fluent and receptive in all five love languages. It really warms our hearts and helps the pod. So until next time, folks, keep your love tank full. And your psychic rapport open. Doopy doopy.